Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on technology and science. And coming up, Kate Brown, the author of Manual for Survival, tells us what lessons she has taken away from researching the Chernobyl disaster. Wondering why we haven't been more curious about our exposure. In many ways, we all live in the shadow of the mushroom cloud or Chernobyl. And how two scientists in China could have found a solution for recharging the pacemaker. These guys questioned whether or not it might be possible to create a new configuration for piezoelectrics to be able to generate enough electricity to power a pacemaker. But first, the diagnosis of Parkinson's. The disease frequently causes tremors, rigidity, and dementia. It is both debilitating and shortens life expectancy. But as with many diseases, the earlier the intervention, the better, as its most harmful effects can be staved off with drugs. Yet herein lies one of the greatest challenges. There are no tests that diagnose whether Parkinson's is present. However, there is a novel solution. Smell. To discuss this, I'm first joined by Joy Milne, who has had a super sense of smell, and her story is incredible. Hello, Joy. Hello, Ken. Joy, tell me your story. My husband was diagnosed when he was 45, but I began smelling him when 12 years earlier, when he was 31, 32. And we didn't know, even as a doctor and nurse, we didn't know what that smell was. But by the time he was about 42, we realized there was a possibility of some neurological involvement. He retired at 50. We stayed in Macclesfield, but then we returned to Scotland. And at the first Parkinson's meeting, I got home with him and I said, look, sit down and I have something to tell you. And I said to him, all the other people with Parkinson's in that room smell the same as you. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, look, you know the smell that I sometimes you know, go on about. They smell the same. So he said, well, we'll have to go back to the next meeting. So we went back to the next meeting and I was giving out coffees and teas and I was sniffing. And I wasn't even out the door and he said, well, and I said, "Uh, yeah, it's there and it's all different levels. Wow. Now, what did it smell like? Describe it. It's a harsh, musky smell. It's a really quite dank smell and greasy. So what happened next? Because he had been a consultant in Aesthetist and we knew we needed somebody who would listen. But I was going to the um, research in Little France and Dr. Tilo Kenneth was speaking. He's a stem cell researcher. And I said, right, this is it. You've got to stand up and do it now. And um, on the morning, Les didn't feel well. So I had to go by myself. And I I can't remember a word Tilo said, but I did stand up when he asked for questions. And I said, why are we not using the smell of Parkinson's to diagnose it earlier? And what was his reaction? There was absolute total silence. I mean, this is quite a large room. Everybody was looking at each other. and And then I said, well, to break the silence, I said, well, I can smell it all around me. And did he believe you? Not immediately. It was a sort of, you know, ask the consultant that was there and ask Catherine Crawford, who's in charge of Parkinson's UK, and she said she'd never heard of it. And Teal left it until a few weeks later he was at a dinner and uh, he was with a few other researchers and he mentioned it 
And this woman who was in cancer research said to him, find her now. This is incredible. You've got a real special mission in life. I seem to, yes. A new job at uh, your mid-60s is all right. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Now to discuss the scientific side of it and the clinical side, I'm joined on the phone by Perdita Barron, a professor of mass spectrometry at the University of Manchester and the lead researcher of the study that used Joy's nose. Hello, Perdita. Hello, Ken. Perdita, what did you do with Joy's amazing abilities? We devised this test to see whether my or dismissive or skepticism about whether she was just associating symptoms with, with a general odour was true. So we recruited six people who had Parkinson's disease and six people who didn't to take part in, it was called the t-shirt test. So they wore t-shirts overnight and these t-shirts were all the same. And then we put them in bags and took them to Joy to smell. And in fact, he cut them in half. So there were from six people with Parkinson's and six without, and they were all in identical bags and they all looked the same. And Joy was then able to not only identify all the people who had Parkinson's disease and also put the two halves of their T-shirt together. So some were stronger smelling than others, and she knew that, and she put those two together. But also all but one of the people who didn't have Parkinson's disease, she indeed said, no, these are these are just normal people. But one of the people who didn't have Parkinson's disease in, our, in the study, she said, did have the smell. And so we thought, okay, that's a false positive, but, you know, she's had a really good hit right here. We need to try and get some funding. This potential false positive, how do you know it's false? Well, we just assumed that because they had been a control subject, but that was thicker. About nine months later, the person who didn't need to, and he's someone we're also very grateful to, came back and told Tilo and asked that he indeed had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. So again, Joy, as she had with her husband, had identified the smell of Parkinson's disease prior to any distinguishing motor symptoms. So what is the science behind this? So the science behind this that we've done is to try and mimic Joy's nose as much as possible in an experiment. So these types of experiments, these types of experimental procedures are actually used a lot in the perfume industry and in the food and drink industry where volatile odorous compounds are, are, are wanted to be identified. So when people are formulating a perfume based on natural products, they want to make sure that, that they can do that in a laboratory environment. And so they use people who are like Joy, professional noses, they're called noses, that's the technical term, to smell compounds that have been separated using an analytical technique called thermal desorption, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. And in simple terms, what we do in these experiments is we warm up a sample slightly so to release any molecules that are going to be volatile and, and go through the air. And those compounds are then sent along a, a chromatographic column where they're separated according to how long they want to be on the column. And that's based on affinity for the, for the surface. So compounds are coming like runners in a very slow race. They're coming off one by one. And in the analytical experiment, they are then sent to a mass spectrometer, all in line. In the thermal desorption, when it's used also for odor diagnostics or odor distinction, there is a T-piece between the chromatographic column and the mass spectrometer, at which point there is something called an odor port. And the nose, in our case, Joy, puts their nose there and smells the compounds as they come off and presses a button. 
as they elute, we use the word elute, as they come off the column. And that button annotates the trace of material that's coming off separated and can be used then to, to see where what the identified molecules are. So the mass spectrometer doesn't smell, it tells us what they are. The nose smells and we can put those two data sets together. So why is it so hard to diagnose Parkinson's and how many years out are we now able to detect it? Okay, so Parkinson's is a disease with a number of symptoms. The ones that people are most familiar with are the motor symptoms, the shaking, and those are actually what are used along with, for example, the loss of sense of smell, along with some intestinal problems, some gut problems, and various other problems to do with mood. By the time clinicians are able to put those groups of symptoms together that sometimes come in, in different ways, or different in different intensities, they're able to, to give a diagnosis. But at that stage, the, the damage to the dopamine-producing neurons in the brain is irreversible. The symptoms can be alleviated, and, and many people live with Parkinson's for years and years in, with good ability to do so. So this, the treatment that currently exists can alleviate the symptoms for some time, but it won't reverse the damage. What Joy did both with Les and also with the, the control subject in the T-shirt test, was to identify this smell that's associated with Parkinson's long before those motor symptoms arose. So what we have done so far in our clinical trial is, is look at people who've been just diagnosed. What we are now doing in the next coming months is looking at people who are at risk of developing Parkinson's. So there are various disorders, including um, sleep disorders, where people have a high chance, very high chance, 50 to 75% chance of developing Parkinson's or a Parkinson's-like disease within 10 years. So we're taking samples from those cohorts. And if we can then predict whom from those will develop Parkinson's, well, we are then identifying a cohort of people who could be given drug treatments that may prevent the degeneration of the neurons. This is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. Next, the Chernobyl disaster was a catastrophic nuclear accident that occurred in April 1986 in the Ukraine, then a part of the Soviet Union. The official death toll is only 54, but the disaster and its aftermath have been surrounded by cover-ups and high security. Historian Kate Brown of MIT looked at it with a decade of archival and on-the-ground research, and it is part of her new book, Manual for Survival. She joins me now in the studio. Kate, first, let's talk about Chernobyl itself. What happened? Well, April 26, 1986, the... Chernobyl reactor, which is in northern Ukraine, had four reactors going. They had planned to build 10 eventually, and they were running a routine test that had not been fully approved all the way up the ladder in these late-night graveyard shift that was doing it. And this reactor was an interesting reactor. It was It's called the RBMK. It's a graphite-moderated reactor, and it had this strange design flaw, which was on shutdown it sped up momentarily. That's like having a car that when you press the brake, the acceleration goes. And the problem was, you know, there had been 104 nuclear incidents and accidents at this very same Chernobyl plant in the five years before 1986. And 
there had been other accidents at other RBMK reactors around the Soviet Union. But because of Soviet secrecy, these plant operators had no idea that there was this fatal flaw. They had no idea about previous excursions. And so they ran their test, and the reactor was unstable at the end of the test. And they pressed, you know, one of the guys pressed a scram button. And all of a sudden, the plant started to shake in this strange way that big cement buildings should not shake. And then, you know, they heard a rumbling, a loud noise. And then one guy described, you know, being in the machine room and looking up and the huge, you know, ship-sized cement lid on the reactor had gone up and then landed down sideways. And he was looking up at the beautiful Ukrainian night sky. And what he saw was this sort of blue trail of neutrons. He remembered describing it as very beautiful. Okay, so... There is a meltdown. What next? Well, the local firemen came, and they came from this nearby city of Pripyat, which is built specifically for the reactor. And the firemen unbelievably had not been trained in radiation safety. So they walked right in, saw, you know, this reactor on fire, hot, hot, hot fire, burning graphite, shards of graphite all over. So it looked like this constellation of light all over the pavement surrounding the reactor. And so they really had a hard time getting that fire under wrap. They dumped with helicopters a lot of sand and boron onto the fire. You know, there was a big spike. In May 11th, I find in the records, a big spike in radioactivity. So that tells us that that fire went, was going on for quite some time. And where do you see the spike? How do you see a spike? In the classified records where they're counting, giving the daily counts of radioactivity in different spots around Ukraine. I first went to the Ukrainian archives. Ukraine had been one of the republics of the former Soviet Union. Um, then I moved on to Belarus, which was the republic that took the most radioactivity. And what I found is really incredible is that just uh, within 24, 36 hours after the accident, they noticed, you know, they, they drew this circle around the plant and called it the zone of alienation, and they depopulated 120,000 people from that area. But as we know, radioactivity doesn't travel in concentric circles. And it was taking off, heading in a northeasterly direction towards the big Russian cities. And a big storm front was building up. So what you need to have radioactive fallout is wind currents to take the radioactivity somewhere and rain to drop it down to Earth. And that rain, that storm front was promising to have that radioactivity land on Yaroslav, Voronish, and Moscow, you know, m millions of people. So the pilots manipulated the weather to make it rain, radioactive rain, on southern Belarus, rural area, to save the big cities in Russia. And how do they do that? They take uh, canisters of silver iodine, they load it into the planes, and then the pilots go chasing clouds. And when they find a cloud, they seed it, and that silver oxide binds with the precipitation and it makes it heavy and the precipitation falls there rather than traveling farther until it builds into a big thundercloud and comes down in a spring storm. Now, who's making the decisions? Well, that was Moscow. That was the guy, um, Yuri Israel. He was the head of the, the Ministry of Hydrometeorology. And it was, he was in charge of monitoring where this, these radioactive clouds were going and then coming up with maps. And so he was handed this map the day after the accident with this big sort of red arrow heading you know, towards Moscow. So he made that decision. The, the only problem was maybe it was a good triage decision. You make it rain on rural areas to spare urban areas. Fewer people are then exposed. The only problem is they didn't tell 
anyone in Belarus, even the Belarusian Communist Party leader, and certainly not any of the 200,000 people who were living down there in that in those territories. So they lived there for, it wasn't fully depopulated until 1999, 15 years, and really high rates. Of, you know, physicists say it's not healthy to live in, you know, anywhere between one and five curies per square kilometer of, of say, cesium-137. These places had from 40 to 140 curies. And there was, you know, Putin in around about 2006 gave awards to these pilots who were crippled because they got so much on their legs as they drove through these, they flew through these radioactive clouds. They had intestinal trouble and, and sort of amputated limbs from the radioactivity. But these guys got, they were heroes because they saved Russia. They didn't get any awards in Belarus. There are so many lessons of Chernobyl. It speaks so much to science, to public policy, to preparedness, to decision under uncertainty, to the forthcoming of our politics. What to you is the most important lesson? What does Chernobyl mean? Well, we're often told that Chernobyl is mankind's worst nuclear disaster. And what I found is that's not true at all, actually, that our leaders, especially the leaders of the big nuclear powers, issued through nuclear testing 500 times more radioactivity than Chernobyl. In the name of peace and nuclear deterrence, they blew up on the Earth's surface 520 nuclear bombs. I've finished Manual for Survival wondering why we haven't been more curious about our exposure long-term to billions and billions of curies of radioactivity from the Cold War. In many ways, we all live in the shadow of the mushroom cloud or Chernobyl, and, and that's what I'd like us to be more conscious of as we talk about these issues now. Like, take Cumbria, areas in you know, northern England, northern Wales, southern Scotland, and Cumbria after... On May 2nd, after the accident, the clouds, the wind shifted and it went to the northwest and there was a big rainfall right in that area. May 2nd, 24 millimeters of rain came down and with it, of course, Chernobyl radioactivity. So immediately they noticed something was going on and they had 7,000 farmers who were restricted from selling their sheep as meat because uh, the sheep were contaminated. And those restrictions were lasting. 26 years later, 350 farmers were still under those restrictions. But what they, once they looked around and they're monitoring this Chernobyl radioactivity, they find that about half of the radioactivity in the soils is not from Chernobyl. It's from global fallout and the wind scale accident in 1957. And I think that sort of wedding cake layers of radioactivity is something that we haven't really dealt with. Kate Brown, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. As regular Babbage listeners know, we often give away a book to one or potentially two listeners who has answered one of our silly subjective questions with suitable pith. Last week, we asked the question, we call them bugs, but what do they call us? And we've got scores, literally scores of replies from listeners. Some of our favorites were bigs, beds, debuggers, Kafka-esque, but the two winners are from Xena, humbugs, and from Michael, Buzzkill. And finally, is change coming to how pacemakers are powered? 
At the moment, these vital lifesavers are commonly run on lithium batteries that typically last between 5 and 15 years. This means the patient will need to go back to hospital to replace the unit. But a new solution is at hand. Two scientists in China have sought a way of recharging a pacemaker's battery by scavenging energy from inside the body. To discuss this, I'm joined by the economist science correspondent Matt Kaplan. Hello, Matt. Hey, Ken. Matt, how do pacemakers work? So pacemakers are little devices that will give your heart a jolt when it goes out of rhythm to get the electrical system of the heart moving at the right rhythm once more. And they do this by tapping into a lithium battery that's installed on the pacemaker and uh, runs for quite a long time before the battery runs out. Okay, so what then is wrong with the current model? There's technically nothing wrong with the current model. The batteries just eventually run out, and the only way to put a new battery in is surgery. And surgery is best avoided if you can avoid it. So the notion is let's see if we can put something in that's not going to need changing. So what is the new idea? The new idea is to tap into piezoelectrics. And even that isn't a novel idea. Folks have been messing with piezoelectrics for a long time. And so piezoelectrics are compounds that when they get flexed, generate electricity. They can release electrons that we can tap into. And the notion of using a piezoelectric strip on the edge of a heart has been around before. The problem is the heart doesn't deform very much as it beats, and so the fiber isn't flexing very much, and so the electricity generated by piezoelectric materials hasn't been very great to date and certainly not been enough to charge a pacemaker. But something has changed. Yeah, and that's the work being conducted by Jiang Hao of the Second Military Medical University in Shanghai and Yang Bin of Shanghai Jiao Tong University. These guys questioned whether or not it might be possible to create a new configuration for piezoelectrics such that the small movements of the heart could deform them enough to be able to generate enough electricity to power a pacemaker. The real genius of what they've done is they've created a flexible capsule And the capsule is, you know, like any gelatinous capsule that you might swallow, just a lot smaller. And as the heart beats, the notion was that they would insert this capsule into the pericardial sac just below your heart. So as the heart moves, the space in the sac gets reduced. And as the heart pumps in again and contracts, the space in the sac becomes greater. And so they created this little capsule and lined either side of it with piezoelectric strips. So you've got not one strip that's laying flat on the side of a heart and being slightly deformed every time the heart moves. You've got strips that are on the side of a capsule that's getting crushed inside the pericardial sac every time the heart pumps. As a result, you've got two strips that are generating quite a lot of electricity as the sides of the capsule get deformed. They tested this thing out in a pig by connecting up the piezoelectric strips to a pacemaker, and they found that they did generate enough electricity to keep the thing going. And when do you think that this is going to become part of the traditional medical device? Well, you know, back in the 1970s, people were installing plutonium pacemakers into people because, well, you know, plutonium will go on until long after you're dead. But, of course, they're radioactive, so maybe not the best of ideas. And they were able to do that relatively quickly. These guys in China are already doing this on pigs, demonstrating that it's safe and effective. So the step from pig's heart, which is not that different from a human heart, is a small step. So I think we're going to see human trials within the next couple of years. Matt, that's really interesting. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. 
And that's all for this week's Babbage. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.